You have reached a phone call from Paul. A Literary Hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part 2 of Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Edgar Carrot. You know, as you, as you were talking before about the need for for other people and the, the difficulty of, you know, just having Zitzfleisch, as it were, and sitting alone in, in a room. I was reminded of a line that I discovered recently of James Baldwin, where he says, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world. But then you read... No, I think the same goes for joy too, you know, I guess that's what my father would say. <laughs> we all, when we're happy, we think we're the happiest people on earth, and sometimes when you read about people's lives and adventures and the things that they can imagine, you say, whoa, these guys, they, they even have more fun than I do. And, and what, what, were those, what were those books that, that made you feel um, less lonely? Then you realized. You read Kafka and you say, well, this guy is even more stressed and less competent than I am, you know. And then you read Quote von Ekut's uh, Slaughterhouse 5, you know. And you say, whoa, you know, this soldier, like, you know, he's as bad as I am. And I think that, that uh, there was something in, in, in both in Kafka and von Ekut, which I've read together, that kind of made me realize that maybe I could write. Because before that, you know, I was only a reader. I think in Israel, you know, the role of writers is is kind of different. You know, I think that you know when you look at people like Amos Oz or David Grossman, they are they are true leaders, and they they kind of when they speak, you have a feeling that you know where they're going, where we should go. While when you read Kafka, you you know you just kind of encounter questions and fears, but you don't say, "Whoa, this guy should be the president of the." I think that reading Kafka and Vonnegut and reading about their kind of incompetence, I said, okay, maybe as a writer you don't need to offer any solution. It's just enough to share some pains and troubles and dilemmas and questions. 
and and questions and joy and and perhaps in your case um but also in Kafka's case you know um a tremendous amount of humor that that makes that makes um the difficulty of this business of living a little bit more bearable yes i i think i think that the that there's something about humor i i, I once said in an interview that uh, uh, humor it's like you know those air cushions that you have in a in a car yeah kind of late in the case of an ex- yeah i find myself you know always funniest when i'm extremely stressed or when i deal with an uh, impossible situation i think that there is something about humor that automatically most humor is kind of reflexive so it kind of gives you this ability to be inside the situation but also outside of it and this kind of thinking feeling that what's happening now is gonna last forever and it had been forever and it's the only thing in the universe kind of diminishes the moment that you're able to, to say a joke about it you know Louis CK came to to Israel and he talked about being bold and kind of suffering from being bold and like I'm not bold but I could think that you know like that everybody has his cross to bear and he said that the one first time he thought that being bold was kind of a good thing was when he saw uh, those ISIS uh, clips of executions because he said it's very very difficult to lift the head of the beheaded person if he doesn't have any hair you know he doesn't look <laughs> in the clip you know if you if you can, can't lift him from his hair what would you lift him from his nostrils you know so I think that, that you know that, that basically when you talk about being bold and fear of ISIS and at the same time tell a joke there is something about this entire package it suddenly seems that you know it's it's just another thing in life it's not this kind of thing that kind of paralyzes you and sucks you in and doesn't leave any space for anything more i think that, the, that there is something about humor it's that kind of like you know you you squ- you squeeze five people into a, a small false wagon you know and then you tell a joke and then you have space for an extra passenger and then you tell another joke and then you find space for the seventh one um it, it it brings it brings to mind um you know one of the greatest scenes in a night at the opera um the marx brothers come to mind as you're describing five or six people in a in a, in a volkswagen um which itself is a perfect seems to be like the perfect car you you bring all all the people in one small space and then try to bring even more of them into that space and it also brings to mind What I once read UNESCO said about humor that humor and fundamentalism are diametrically opposed of course of course because humor I think good humor always kind of introduces a new point of view and a new point of view uh, makes you acknowledge the fact that there are uh, other people around you and that there are other thoughts around you I think that's what works in humor if somebody will tell you something that you've already perceived you wouldn't laugh you know the joke is that somebody shows you something that you've seen in a different light and and i think that the reason that we laugh is maybe because we're also real confused but also this kind of joy of realizing that our world is wider than we thought a second ago and you know and i think that fundamentalism and nationalism and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, 
other regimes, they work very hard to tell you that you can think only in one way. And in that sense, I think that humor always kind of endangers them. And and in that way, you know, you were talking about Amos Oz and, and David Grossman. In that way, um, would you say that that insofar that you can say something about what you wish your reader to to feel or to sense when reading you, that one of the things you, you would wish them to, to sense is that the humor will give them 10, 15, 20 different ways of, of looking at the world. Yeah, yeah, I think unconsciously, but I think that this is what, what I always kind of look for in humor, to kind of widen the space in which we live. Right. Um, which writer, I mean, you mentioned Twain before, but which writers or which filmmakers or which musicians um, make you laugh? Kafka makes me laugh a lot. Uh, and I know that I'm not supposed to say it. Oh, no, no, no. You know, Kafka said a line, Edgar, that I love, that I feel like Woody Allen could have said equally as well. He said, there is hope, but not for us. <laughs> I mean, it's very funny. And, you know, of course it's funny, but but not funny in the least. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's almost inherently truth because, like, because I think that we all kind of kind of are immersed in our own despair, but at the same time we acknowledge the fact that hope exists. So, but I I I, I think that I, I also really love Terry Gilliam. You know, right? I think Brazil is a movie that had really made me laugh and cry at the same time. I really like the Coen Brothers, and I think that they can be extremely funny. Uh, and they, and I, one of my favorite artists ever is Charlie Chaplin. I really, really love Charlie Chaplin in my my house. You know, in our living room, we have a poster of him without the mustache and the hat. And uh, and uh, you just look at you know, those wise eyes, and you know, and you remember all those wonderful films that he had made. Yes. I, 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 I share, I must say, I, I do share that last passion uh, quite deeply and try, try to show my boys and have over, over the years quite a few Chaplin movies that, that always have the, the, the mixture of, of great humor and sadness all, all combined into one. Yes, and, and my son also loves Chaplin films. And the truth is that he knows that, uh, that uh, unlike tragedy or drama, I think that, that, that usually comedy gets they, uh, outdated really, really quick. There are many things that you know that made me laugh, and when I show them to my son, it does, doesn't make him laugh. But Charlie uh, Chaplin makes him laugh. And, but, but when also Monty Python. You know, it, it, it brings up all kinds of, of issues of, you know, what does age well? And what do we remain faithful to of our passions that we, books we once upon a time loved or people we once upon a time loved? And, and then when we revisit them, people and books and, and, and films and all the things that surround us that gave us pleasure, you know, what, what remains strong? What bears a rereading or a re-meeting? 
And in to, to some extent, few things do, and those things that do are really, really strong for us. And sometimes, actually, things are only good at a certain moment. Yeah, I, I, I think that one of the experiences of parenthood is really uh, this kind of guide to, to your childhood because you always try to share with your children the things that you've liked. And sometimes you see that you still like them, but they don't. And sometimes while you kind of read it to them, you say, whoa, this isn't as good as I remembered it was. Right. It's always a, kind of a sad experience. You it know, is. It's kind of like meeting your favorite uh, kindergarten teacher and seeing that she was kind of a boring woman. You know, it's those kind of things yes. that, that you would rather not go through and keep, keep your memory intact. Edgar, you know, there's one, there's one passage in the seven good years that I, I truly adore is where you create fictitious inscriptions, um, book inscriptions when people come for book signings. Instead of saying best wishes, you, you end up writing things that are completely, uh, nearly mad, but mad and so funny. Did you ever really do this? Oh, yes, of course I did. Uh, the, the thing is that, you know, that when I, I first published and people had asked me for an autograph, there is something about it that, that, you know, that a book is something very, very intimate and authentic and, uh, and some kind of a celebration of your uniqueness. And then suddenly you write to somebody best wishes or this great friendship without knowing him, and you feel like kind of... Why of all places should I write this in a book? You know, right. the, the entire book is my claim for authenticity. And why do I have to write something fake on it and repeat myself when I when it's against everything I write? So, so in the beginning, when I would write dedications, you know, I would write to you know to Paul. I'm sorry, I got your your sister pregnant. You know, it wasn't on purpose. Or you know, where are, where are those twenty dollars that you owe me? You, <laughs> you know, and I would write those kind of uh, things. Or I saw, I'm sorry, I gave you herpes. Uh, you know, and I, I thought there was something nice about it because it was comical and it was creative. But uh, but one time I, I wrote to to a very beautiful girl. You know that I wrote where you know you may hate me, but we both know that the baby is mine. And uh, and her boyfriend came and and slapped me. You know, so I, I, I've learned my lesson, and since then, because I don't want to repeat myself, I make those little doodles in books, because I realize that even if you try to make the same doodle, you never repeat yourself. So if you try to draw a duck or, or a cat or surfing dog, you know, then in the end, you make something that at least you know that what you've made in this book wouldn't be exactly the same thing that you've made in another well, you know, it's it's a, a wonderful. I I hope I hope our our listeners will will uh, will read the seven good years and read that passage and understand better what what you were up to because it it really for for someone such as myself who um, has a lot of writers who come and and are in in some sense obliged uh, to. To, to sign books, um, there, there must be such a liberation that you, you found in creating this kind of fictitious inscription that now I imagine, except for that one boyfriend, I would imagine that a lot of people find it but the continuation of, 
of the book that you're they're reading. It's a, it's another. It's kind of an added PS or a note uh, to the book that that is one and unique for them alone. Well, I must say that you know that uh, that when I started publishing, you know, when people would write me fan letters, and today I'm too disorganized, and I usually find myself losing them or forgetting to reply. But when I would get you know one every five or six months, and I had time to focus on it, then when somebody would send me a a, a fan a letter, I would either uh, write something especially for him, like the beginning of a story or a paragraph or something. Or I would send to him a story that I never, I've never published, you know. And I said, hey, you know, I was unable to publish it, but this one is for you. And and the thing is that, you know, that there is something asymmetrical in the relationship between a writer and a reader. And in a sense, I always felt so much in the reader's depth because this guy sits down and spends three, four, five hours, you know, kind of reading you, listening to you. Like, imagine you sitting next to somebody and talking for five hours without him even saying a word, without him even mentioning his name. So I couldn't help feeling that I owe each reader who wanted to communicate, you know? And I guess I still do. Like, I mean, technically, because when you have more readers, then you find yourself failing. But when when somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know, I want your autograph, or I want to ask you a question, and he said, I've read your book, then I said, okay, I owe this guy, you know, he gave me a few hours of his life, so I should listen to his question. Did you did you work with Tom Waits? Oh, I wasn't that lucky. This, this, the thing is that, that Tom Waits had appeared in Wrist Cutter's Love Story, uh, which is a, a film, an American film, made by a director called Goran Dukic, and it's based on uh, uh, my novella, Nella's Happy Campers. Yes. And and Gohan had actually offered me to have this little role in the film in which I have to uh, give uh, Tom a musical instrument because there is a scene there where he kind of is supposed to play music. And uh, I really, really wanted to do that. And and uh, the week I was supposed to fly to L.A., uh, we've lost one of our actors in Jellyfish because he had signed with a very big production. And the idea was that if I would fly to do this scene with Tom Waits, who is a hero for me, uh, I would not be here to cast, you know, the film that we were supposed to shoot a month later. So in the end, like, I find myself, I found myself staying and, you know, and go and say, hey, you know, but for sure you're going to meet in the premiere. But of course, Tom Waits didn't come to the premiere and I've, I never got to meet him. Oh, because I, I, I somehow imagined, I, I must have read somewhere that, that Tom Waits worked with you, and I imagined that you you might have met him and worked with him, because he's someone, among the, the, the few people I, I would love to talk to before I die, um, Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen uh, are really two of them that I, I really feel very strongly about. And there's a wonderful, a wonderful story uh, that Liz, Elizabeth Gilbert tells in a, a, a review, um, kind of a profile of, of Tom Waits, where she is driving with him in L.A. and she says to him, so what happened between these two albums? There were seven years between the two albums that he had done. And she says, what, what happened? And he said, I got caught in a traffic jam. 
But you know, it's funny how you put it that you said that you would want to speak to Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits before before you die, and both of them are much older than you. Yes. So, so you didn't say before they died. No, 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 no. I did. I. I, I, I guess you feel very mortal, and I share that feeling with you. you I know? I do. I do. It's uh, it's so fragile. <laughs> it's yeah, it's like I would want to meet the, or I wouldn't, but maybe I, if I would have to say that I would want to meet Queen Elizabeth, I would say before I die, not before she would. She dies, yeah, but but I I feel, but you're you're absolutely right, Edgar. You you caught that, and and the 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 fragility, vulnerability, and and it's really also in a in a sense something that I would I would love. I would love for my life, in so far that I'm looking at my life, to have had the opportunity to speak with Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen and maybe a few other people. Um, it just feels that it would be a little bit more complete. I mean, terribly incomplete, but a little more complete. And um, and, the, and I feel, but the way that you phrase it, it's really like you say, I don't mind speaking to them after they die. But I just want to speak to them before I die. <laughs> you're right, um, Edgar. Before before I let you go, you're, you're going to go back to 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 writing that um, television show with with your wife. I'm I'm wondering if you you might leave us with some some piece of literature that has inspired you. If there's something around in your in your library that you'd like to read, I'd I'd love to hear you read the work of someone else. Well, well, you know, we we talked about Kurt Vonnegut and we talked about our feeling of, you know, of how time is fleeting and how much of of our, of the our past we really own. So there is this paragraph in the introduction to Slaughterhouse 5 where he where Kurt Vonnegut talks about a trip that he took with his daughter and one of her friends. And it goes like this. The two little girls and I crossed the Delaware River, where George Washington had crossed it. The next morning, ah, sorry, sorry, <laughs> I reread it. The two little girls and I crossed the Delaware River, where George Washington had crossed it. The next morning, we went to New York, Words Fair, saw what the past had been like, according to the Ford Motor Car Company and Walt Disney. So what the future would be like, according to General Motors. And I asked myself about the present, how wide it was, how deep it was, how much was mine to keep. Tell me what, um, what this evokes for you. I think that it automatically evokes this kind of thing that when you are feeling something, and you know, especially if it's something that kind of overflows you with emotion, you both in the present, but at the same time you say, where, where will this feeling be, you know, 20 minutes from now, 20 years from now? Where, where will this be kept? And I think that the wish to keep it kind of drives you into writing, because when you write, you're like kind of a a coin collector, but you collect emotions, you collect kind of fragments of time, you collect feelings that you had in a certain time, and you try to kind of keep them outside of time. So I think that I immediately identify with this wish to keep something of the present, and you know, and I think that it's not a coincidence that it's something that a, a writer had wrote. 
Edgar, it's it's been a, a pleasure to speak with you, a pleasure to to start this conversation by speaking with your mother and ending up here with Kurt Vonnegut and all of the things we, we evoked and spoke about. And I, I can't wait to see you sometime soon. And I, I send you a, a, a big a big fraternal hug. Thank you, thank you. I'm looking forward to our next meeting too. Take good care of yourself. All the best. Thank you, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.